We are uh, working our way through this doctrine of dispensational theology, the outworking of God's revelation. That is, how He revealed Himself throughout time and how He is revealing Himself in, uh, in different ways. Does anyone want to help us by giving us a definition of dispensation? Of a dispensation? What are, what are we talking about when we talk about dispensations? All right. Anyone else want to? How about just a one-word synonym, Stacy? Okay. Good. So you have a different era, a different time period, and uh, of of how God reveals Himself. The Schofield Reference Bible says this: a dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect to obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. And we said that there were seven of those. We looked at those last week. Um, But I did say last week that that doesn't really set us apart from those who believe in covenant theology. And uh, what, what is it that does separate us? There's three things that separate those who believe in dispensational theology and those who believe in covenant theology. Remember what those three were? Or at least one of them? Okay, there's a clear distinction between Israel and the church. That's what we believe. Uh, covenant theology, well-meaning people, uh, I believe they are believers. Okay, They believe that Israel and the church are the same. So they're synonymous. Anywhere you see them, Israel in the Old Testament, you can include church. Anywhere you see the church in the New Testament, you can think Israel. It's uh, maybe not that cut and dry, but, but pretty much that's, uh, that's what they believe. Can you think of another one? Another distinction? Okay, they would believe, yeah, most of them would believe that. There are some that, that believe in infant baptism. We did talk about that. Um, uh, but there are actually two specific things that really set us apart, two other specific things. One is a normal, literal interpretation of the script, Scripture, or I could say a, a consistent use of a normal interpretation. Um, that is, that when when we look at the Scriptures, we see it literally. When we look at the prophecies, we see them as, as literal. We don't spiritualize them. When we look at Israel, we don't spiritualize them. We recognize that there was a specific purpose at that time, it, during that era, that time period, that dispensation. And uh, and they tend to allegorize or spiritualize a lot of, a lot of the Scripture. They have to because of the way that, that they believe. And the third is, God's primary purpose. What it, what do they believe God's primary purpose is? Okay, redemption to save mankind, and that we believe that that is, that is one of God's purpose, but not His primary, His overarching purpose, because that leaves out uh, things like God's purpose for demons, God's purpose for holy angels, God's purpose before the fall, God's purpose in eternity past, God's purpose in eternity future. So. You're missing a whole, uh, a whole huge part of history and of creation. So we believe that it's for the glory of God. And I didn't even mention the, you know, God's creative work, like God's purpose for trees. What does that have to do with His redemption? Um, we, we, we'd have to uh, come up with some answer to that. And that's why we believe that, according to Romans 11:36, 1 Corinthians 10:31, God's overarching purpose is to glorify Himself, to give Him self-praise as he deserves. 
Last week we saw seven dispensations in human history. Uh, I I can see these in Scripture. I follow Ryrie, uh, who whose book we have been using. Um, and the first one is before the fall, and that's called the the dispensation of innocence. And then from the fall to Noah, uh, which was the flood, you have uh, the dispensation of conscience. We talked about that last week. And then civil government from Noah to Abraham, and then promise from Abraham to Moses, and then Moses to the first part of Acts is which dispensation? Law. Okay, and now we're in the dispensation of what? Grace. All right, and that will last until the end of the tribulation. Uh, remember, each one ends with a period of judgment. Seems as if that's the way they they end. And uh, the, so these are God's way of dealing with with His creation, how He's going to to reveal Himself. And I said that, that these are, when we looked at Luke 16, we saw that, that He is the owner of these. He can change them whenever He pleases. And he can, he can give responsibilities based on what He chooses. And this is what He does. And this is what He has done. And uh, what He will do in the, the, the final dispensation is the dispensation of the kingdom or the millennium. And uh, that will conclude God's uh, revelation of himself, or at least the changing of his revelation. So this week we want to look at how dispensationalism came about, because there are some people who would argue that um, the dispensationalism is actually a very recent phenomenon and should not be accepted. Before we do that, let me pray and ask for God's help as we do this. Father, give us uh, strength and the uh, clarity and thought to be able to think through these things and to understand them uh, in relationship to history and in relationship to Your Word and to be able to uh, see how You have worked and what You are doing in our current era and what You will do. May we um, understand these things according to how You want us to and then respond to them accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to what uh, one proponent of covenant theology says about the beginnings of dispensational theology. This is Daniel Fuller. He was a professor for 40 years at Fuller Theological Seminary. He says, Ignorance is bliss. And it may well be that this popularity of dispensationalism would not be so great if the adherents, that the followers of this system, knew the historical background of what they teach. <clears throat> Few indeed realize the teaching of Schaefer came from Schofield, who in turn got it through the writings of Darby and the Plymouth Brethren. So let me help you read between the lines. The first thing that he's saying is that um, that if it's recent, then it's unorthodox. And what he's saying is since it came from Darby, the Plymouth Brethren, 1800s, then it can't be orthodox. It has to be something that the early church fathers had established, had understood clearly, and passed on down to us. Okay. The second thing that he's saying about dispensational theology <clears throat> is that they were a separatist movement. The Plymouth Brethren were a separatist movement, and therefore they were uh, divisive. They were a divisive group, and so if it's a divisive group, they have an agenda, and if they have an agenda, then they, they're bringing on false theology, so don't believe them. The third thing that he's saying is that dispensationalism is man-made. <clears throat> that it came, he says, it came from Darby, uh, or it came from Darby, and then passed down to Schofield, and so it's really just a man-made religion. 
or a man-made understanding of the Scriptures, if you tried to go to the Scriptures and try to find that yourself, you wouldn't be able to find it uh, without, without these men making it up. So, what we have to uh, guard ourselves against is these straw men arguments. Okay, they set up the, the opponents, not just Fuller, but, but others, set up two primary straw men, and then they huff and puff and blow them down with, with their uh, counter arguments. So, what Ryrie does in his book is he wants to show that the foundation of dispensationalism is not a straw man. Okay, it's not, it's not weak but rather it's strong and it will hold up to their huffing and puffing. The first thing uh, that, that they argue is that dispensationalism was developed after the Bible was completed. So they set up this, that dispensationalism is anti-biblical because it was set up after the Bible was completed, so pff, blows it down. That, that argument doesn't hold. But the thing is, is nobody argues that that this system was developed during the Bible times. It was largely developed, as we're going to see later, by a man, uh, by, a na- by a man whose name was John Nelson Darby. But its origins actually go f- much farther back than him. And just because it's, it wasn't fully developed uh, doesn't mean that it was unorthodox. The truth is that there are some principles uh, of dispensationalism in the early church. We're going to look at that today. Some of the principles of dispensationalism were uh, were seen even in, in as early as the second century. So, so we we got to be careful with how we we characterize this understanding of scripture. And if we're honest, we have to understand that many doctrines do not get fully developed uh, until centuries after the early church, till centuries after the scriptures are written. For example, the doctrine of the end times. John Calvin wrote uh, a commentary on every single book in the Bible except for two. Can you guess which two of those are? Revelation and Daniel. And you know why he didn't write commentaries on that? He ran out of time. No, he said, I can't understand them. And so, so this doctrine of the end times is still developing People are still trying to understand all of the the concepts that are set out in Scripture. Uh, You understand that the Word of God is very deep. And in fact, covenant theology, the the opponents of dispensational theology, their understanding of Scripture didn't come around until the 1600s. So really their argument is not it has to be there in the first century, but it has to be there before ours. Because we came around the 1600s, years primarily around the 1800s, uh, yours can't be true. Uh, so again, I'm not suggesting that the early church fathers or even you know the apostles understood fully dispensational theology, but but we also have to recognize that there's nothing new under the sun, right? So there have to be some principles that go back to the scriptures that go back to the early church fathers. I mean, remember what Peter said about Paul's writings? That these are hard sayings. Did Peter fully understand all of the all of the inner workings of Paul's writings and all the implications that it had? No. I mean, what about when Jesus talked to the disciples while he was on earth and he said, "This this body, this temple is going to be destroyed in three days, and then it's going to 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 be resurrected. Or it's going to be to be restored." What did they say? That can't be true. 
I mean, so it takes time. When was it that they actually understood? John's Gospel says they didn't understand that what he was saying about the temple being destroyed and being rebuilt. Till when? After the resurrection. Then they thought back. And, and so, so some of these... Just because something's written down as truth doesn't mean that everybody instantaneously understands it. And so in many ways, we stand on the shoulders of church fathers before us of theologians before us, people who study the Scriptures. We stand on their shoulders because they have worked to understand as much as they could in their lifetime. They passed it down to the next generation. It was, it was worked out, massaged a little bit. That doesn't mean that the Scriptures' meaning changes. It means our understanding of it does. And so we have to be careful about this first straw man. Um, no, no generation ever feels like it's fully got a system of theology. Like it's completely got all of what the Scripture is saying. No generation ever feels like that. Like like if we just had more time. In fact, with regard to dispensational theology, um, our, my uh, theology professor, Dr. McCune, said that it's probably only about 40% developed right now. Okay, the, the main structure of it's there, but it still needs to be developed more. In other words, it needs to... Each section needs to be understood on the basis of, of different passages of Scripture. There's still questions that, that need to be answered. And so, again, it's, it's, it's a process. The, the understanding of it is a process. The second straw man you see there is that if it wasn't in the first century, it can't be right. Again, covenant theology wasn't in the first century. Um, this is not necessarily uh, accurate. Unless, of course, it's in the Scriptures. If it's in the first century in the Scriptures, it has to be right. But, but the test, test of whether something is right or wrong has little to do with whether the early church fathers understood it. In other words, the test of whether it's right or wrong is not whether it's, it's historic. The test of re- whether something is right or wrong is do the Scriptures teach it? Okay? Is it biblical? Not is it, is it historic? Um, for example... I'll give you an example of something that was historically understood. Baptismal regeneration. That a person has to be baptized in order to be saved. That was believed in the early church. In the early church following the writing of the New Testament. Uh, Does that make it right? No. Okay, It has to be right based on whether it's taught in the Scriptures or not. And so the, the main question we need to answer is not is it historic, but is it biblical? Here's how uh, John Calvin responded to charges of his doctrine being new um, there in the 1500s. He, he wrote, first, this, he's not talking about dispensational theology. He's talking about his own uh, understanding of the Scriptures. He says, first, by calling it new, they do great wrong to God whose sacred word does not deserve to be accused of novelty. That is, it has lain long unknown and, and buried in the fault of man's impiety. Now, when it is restored to us by God's goodness, it claims to antiquity ought to be admitted at least by right of recovery. Okay, so he had the same sorts of charges laid against him and he was saying, you you can't just dismiss it just because you're calling it new. Alright, so where where do we see these uh, these things in in early history? I believe they actually go back to uh, some of the early concepts of dispensational, dispensationalism. Go back to the 2nd century, Justin Martyr. 
Justin Martyr believed that there are differing programs in the Scriptures, differing programs of God. And and again, this shouldn't be a surprise to us because we looked at the passages where that word was actually used, Luke 16 and then several times in, in Paul's writings. Um, he talked about how God... Uh, how God declares a person righteous in different eras. And here's what he said. If one should wish to ask you why, since Enoch, Noah with his sons, and all others in similar circumstances who neither were circumcised nor kept the Sabbath. So see what he's trying to argue here is during the, the period of law, he doesn't call it this, but during the period of law, you were to be circumcised and you are to keep the Sabbath. But here, he's saying, what about Enoch and Noah with his sons and so on? Uh, he's, he says, how can they please God? God demanded by other leaders and by the giving of the law after the lapse of so many generations that those who live between the times of Abraham and of Moses be justified by circumcision and other ordinances to wit the Sabbath and sacrifices and libations and offerings. He's saying there's another form and there's another way in which God dealt with those people between the time of Abraham and Moses even before the time of Abraham. Um, then he talks about, um, he talks about, uh, I'm sorry, the next person we need to look at is Irenaeus, who is also in the, the uh, second century. He says that there were four principal covenants given to the human race. One, prior to the deluge, under Adam. The second, after the deluge, under Noah. The third, the giving of the law, under Moses. And the fourth that re- renovates man and sums up all things in itself by means of the gospel, raising and bearing men upon its wings into the heavenly kingdom. Okay, so so he he comes up with at least four eras in which God works differently with people. He sees that in Scripture. Uh, Clement of Alexandria. Next person here. Um, I think this was Halloween or something when he was getting his picture taken. But uh, he he saw four dispensations in the Old Testament. He saw Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Moses. Okay, it doesn't say I I, I didn't have any. Uh, at least Ryrie didn't say anything about what he believed about the New Testament. But at least saw those four different periods in the Old Testament. And then Augustine or Augustine in the fourth century early 5th century, um, he uh, he has this extended quote. That you have part of it there on your handout, so it might be helpful for you to follow along there. <clears throat> the divine institution of sacrifice was suitable in the former dispensation, but is not suitable now. For God knows infinitely better than man what is fitting for every age, ordering all events in His providence until the beauty of the completed course of time the component parts of which are the dispensations adapted to each successive age in the former period of the world's history. He enjoined one kind of offerings and in the latter period another. If it is now established that that which was for one age rightly ordained may be in another age rightly changed, the alteration indicating a change in the work, not in the plan of him who makes the change, the plan being framed by his reasoning faculty to which, unconditioned by succession and time, those things are simultaneously present which cannot be actually done at the same time because the ages succeed or follow one another. Okay, So God 
In other words, what he's saying is God doesn't work in the same way in, in, the, in, in differing ages because it doesn't make sense to do it that way. And, uh, and so he recognizes, even calls it a dispensation at, at the first part of his quotation. So where would he have gotten that idea? The idea of dispensation. Did he look into the future to when Schofield would have these things figured out? No. Uh, the word dispensation, again, is in, in the Scriptures in both um, Luke 16 and then in Paul's writings. So, I'm not arguing that these early church fathers were dispensationalists. It's not what I'm arguing. But I am arguing that that um, you can see some of the principles, can't you, of what we've been talking about. You can't see all seven that, that I've suggested that Ryrie offers for us, but you start to see the foundation of this theology that's now more fully developed even today. All right? So that's kind of the early concepts of dispensational theology. Now we need to move ahead to, uh, as it's more developed, uh, as it's in the uh, developing stages. First, you have a man by the name of, <coughs> he's a French philosopher named Pierre Poiret, <coughs> who wrote a six-volume systematic theology. He broke down human history into what he calls seven dispensations. Now, he doesn't come up with the same ones that, that I showed you last week, but here's how he broke them down. Infancy, from creation to the deluge. Childhood, from the deluge to Moses. Adolescence, to the prophets. Uh, youth, to the coming of Christ. Manhood, sometime after that. Old age, the time of man's decay. Um, and then the renovation of all things, which he would refer to as the millennium. <clears throat> so his work was significant because his final dispensation is the millennium. The, the same final dispensation that we, we would uh, believe as well. The 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but perhaps a man who is more significant to the developing of dispensational theology is a man who you might whose name you might be familiar with, Isaac Watts. He was, the, he was a hymn writer, uh, and like many of the best hymn writers, they're excellent theologians. They know their Bible, and they know how things work together, and they, they're able to put that into a poetic-type style. He wrote a 40-page uh, essay called The Harmony of All the Religions Which God Ever Prescribed to Men and All His Dispensations Towards Them. Pretty memorable, right? Uh, by the way, Isaac Watts wrote uh, two hymns, that, two most famous hymns that he wrote were, were Joy to the World and When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Um, but he outlined in this essay, this 40-page essay, the following dispensations that you have here on your handout. He has, he has six of them. The uh, the time of innocency, religion of Adam at first, okay, that's before the fall, and then religion of Adam after the fall, so pre-fall Adam, post-fall Adam, and then the Noahic dispensation or Noahical, Abrahamical dispensation, Mosaical dispensation, Christian dispensation. Those are his six. The only thing he's missing here is the one that Poiret included, which was the millennium. And so, um, otherwise, these 
six dispensations are exactly like, as far as the time periods, they're exactly like ours. Uh, innocence, conscience, um, and then civil government, promise, law, and grace. All right, so so it's getting closer to where we understand it today, but it needed a little bit more uh, work, it needed a little bit more thinking, and that's why we have, I call this developed dispensationalism, but, but don't understand that as fully developed, okay? But it's more developed than it was before. And um, the person who is primary, primarily responsible for putting this into a coherent system is a man who is the leader of the Plymouth Brethren, John Nelson Darby in the 1800s. Again, he didn't originate these ideas. He didn't claim to originate these ideas. He saw principles in earlier writings and, and even in his own predecessor, um, and, uh, and he just developed it a little bit more. Darby was born in London, and he fil- finished college at the age of 18. He passed his bar exam. Oops. You don't want to see that yet. Um, He passed his bar exam and soon was practicing law, but after a short legal career of only one year, God got a hold of him, saved him, converted him, and he became ordained to to be a pastor in the Church of England. He did very well, seeing thousands of Catholics converted, but the church would soon ally with the state, if you remember from church history, and Darby felt that he had to leave. And so he began with a new group of believers who were also frustrated with the Church of England. Um, and he wasn't trying to be divisive. He was simply just trying to fellowship with people who, who saw the same way that he did. And so um, he started to do that. But after some traveling, Darby sub- settled in Plymouth, England in 1831. And he started regular ser- services. And within nine years, there were 800 people attending those services. Now, he wanted the name of, of his congregation to be called Brethren, but uh, history remembers them as the Plymouth Brethren because of, of where they were. Here's a summary of his philosophy of dispensationalism uh, from his collected writings, and these spelling errors in here that you find are mine, not, not his. All right. The detail of the history connected with these dispensations bring out many most interesting displays, both of the principles and patience of God's dealing with the evil and failure of man, and of the workings by which he formed faith on his own, thus developed perfections. But the dispensations themselves all declare some leading principle or interference of God, some condition in which he has placed man Principles which in themselves are everlasting, sanction of God, but in the course of those dispensations, placed responsibly in the hands of man for the display and discovering of what he was and bringing in their infallible establishment in him to whom the glory of them all rightly belonged. In every instance, there was a total and immediate failure as regarded man. However, the patience of God might tolerate and carry on by grace the dispensation in which man has thus failed in the outset. Okay, so he saw the same sorts of principles that were a part of each of these dispensations that we talked about last week. He said that that God had given a system or or uh, His revelation to each uh, successive group and they were responsible to do some things. Does that sound familiar from last week? Man had a responsibility in each of those eras. 
And then he also says that it ended in failure. That those eras ended in failure and God brought about a new dispensation following that. And so he receives a lot of credit for um, putting this theology into one system. But uh, the person that we most attribute this uh, more developed system to is a man by the name of Cyrus Angerson Schofield. He was in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Um, Schofield doesn't attribute most of his understanding to Darby, who, who was responsible for a lot of dispensational uh, development, but he actually attributes it back to Watts. You remember Watts? He's the hymn writer. He's the one who had six eras, six dispensations. He didn't have the millennial kingdom. But, but Schofield actually attributes his understanding back to, to Watts instead of Darby. Schofield was born in Clinton Township, Michigan to nominal Episcopalian parents. Do you know what I mean by nominal? Okay, a name only, right? So they, they were, if, you, if we visit them at their house, uh, not too far from here, we, we, we say, uh, so uh, we'd like to invite you to our church. Do you, do you have a church that you regularly attend? And they say, um, well, we're Episcopalian. Oh, well, how often do you attend that church? And they would say, well, well, we don't attend very much, you know, a couple times a year. So, so again, name only, that's what, that's what it means there. Um, when Schofield was three, his mother died, and so he actually spent most of his adolescent years in Lebanon, Tennessee. Uh, when he was 17, he listed, enlisted in the military, but was honorably discharged because of an injury. Uh, shortly after that, he was elected to the Kansas House of Representatives and was later appointed as U.S. District of Attorney at the age, uh, District of Attorney at the age of 29, which was the youngest person ever to do that. He was uh, forced to resign over an alleged scandal where he had supposedly um, either embezzled money or something like that. Um, he later abandoned his wife and his two daughters in 1883 after 17 years of marriage. But again, God was working in him and he actually converted uh, Schofield following that, following the, the leaving of his wife, following the scandal with the government. And, uh, and so he would give the rest of his life to trying to understand the Scriptures and to teach others about it. One of the ways that he began his ministry was by campaigning with the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. And uh, so he would, he would help on his staff to, to, to promote him and to make sure that the events were, were set up and so on. He later came under the ministry of Presbyterian minister James H. Brooks, who was a prominent dispensationalist. He understood the theology and, and he passed that along to Schofield. And Schofield, for him, it really clicked. Um, Schofield later pastored a church in um, in Dallas, Texas, a congregational church. It would grow to over 450 members in the 12 years that he was there. In 1888, he met a man by the name of Hudson Taylor. Anybody know who Hudson Taylor is? Our missionary to where? To China, right? And uh, Schofield and Taylor would become lifelong friends. And the same year um, that he met Taylor, he also wrote a pamphlet called Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. And this would really um, 
catapult him into the forefront of of the thought of this type of theology. He started to to see more clearly how the scriptures were put together, and this happens as he is studying and teaching it to a church. Again, he's there for 12 years. First, he's underneath somebody else's ministry. Then he's teaching it himself. And he starts to see these things that his former mentor, James Brooks, used to teach him. And it becomes more and more clear. And, uh, and eventually, he writes this pamphlet, um, which, which was a significant contribution to uh, dispensational thought. Over the next several years, he would make notes on nearly every paragraph in the entire Bible, and, uh, and that was printed later as in 1909 as the Schofield Reference Bible. Um, but like many churches and church movements, they tend to go liberal over time. Um, the Congregational Church did as well, and so Schofield left to become a Southern Presbyterian and he died in 1921 at the age of 78. So, uh, much of our understanding, much of Ryrie's understanding, okay, he's the one who's writing this book that I'm following, um, much of his understanding comes from Schofield. Schofield. Schofield attributes his understanding to his mentor, Brooks, and also to Isaac Watts before him. Um, so, what we have here is not what Fuller was talking about. We don't have a brand new theology that was just, okay, just came onto the scene with Schofield who got it from Darby. That's not really what happened. Uh, this, the principles of this idea go all the way back to, uh, they, they go all the way back to, uh, to the early centuries following the writing of the scriptures. So, this argument that it's recent, and therefore, unorthodox is actually invalid um, because its concepts were, were actually drawn from the earlier church fathers. And again, if it were recent, it doesn't necessarily make it unbiblical. Uh, the, the test is not whether it's historic, but whether it is biblical, whether it's scriptural. Perhaps the best praise that a this system of thought can receive is from an opponent of it, one who doesn't believe that it is the way of Scripture. This is from George Ladd, um, and I have this for you on the back. He writes this in his book, Crucial Questions About the Kingdom of God. He was not a dispensationalist, but as he studied those who taught it, this is what he had to say. It is doubtful if there has been any other circle of men who have done more by their influence in preaching teaching, and writing to promote the love for Bible study, a hunger for the deeper Christian life, a passion for evangelism, and zeal for missions in the history of American Christianity than, is what he's saying, than those who teach and follow dispensational theology. Okay, that's, not a, okay, that's not a final proof. Because he said that, we have to believe it. But, but it does say something about, um, about those who teach it and those who follow it. Now, again... Just like any system of thought, we can always take it too far and and uh, and we can say this way or the highway, you know, type thing. This is the way Jesus was thinking. This is the way that God. Um, if you don't believe this system of theology, then you're going to hell, type thing. Take it too far. Um, but but we do have a responsibility too, as. Schofield said, to rightly divide the word of truth. And so how are we going to answer these questions about how God dealt with people 
in different ways over different periods of time. How are we going to answer how God dealt with Adam before the fall compared to how He deals with us? How are we going to answer what God, God's expectations are for us compared to the expectations of those under the law? Um, we have to be able to see those distinctions and if we don't see those distinctions, then we're going to open ourselves up to all sorts of other errors that could that could be there when we look at the Scriptures. And perhaps in your study now of uh, or of your Bible reading this year, you have thought through some of these questions. Okay, why does God deal with Jacob the way that He's dealing with him? Why does God deal with Abraham and so on? And, and how does that apply to me? And those are good questions to ask, but we need to have a, I think we need to have a, a system of thought that helps us to draw them all together and be able to, to make sense of them. Any questions or uh, comments today? Bill. Where's that? Which verse is that? Oh, in Ephesians? Yeah. Uh, chapter 3, mm-hmm. 1 through 6. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's crystal clear that there's different groups in different times, but yeah. it's not crystal clear to everybody. Yeah, I think that word there in verse 2 of Ephesians 3 is actually the word for um, dispensation. Says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then he says, of which I have been made a, a minister. So, Trish. Right. Right. Yeah, that's an excellent verse. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 there. God revealed Himself, spoke. Okay, that's the idea. When He speaks, He is revealing something about Himself. He's spoken many times in many ways through the prophets, um, through visions, dreams. Okay, but now He speaks to us in a specific way. He reveals Him. He's revealed something to us through the Scriptures. And we have a responsibility. And the test is, are we going to follow through on that responsibility? And of course, at the end of the dispensation, we find the answer to that. No, we don't. We fail. And so, um, so it's, it concludes with the judgment. All right. Good. Good thoughts. Any others? Treats us differently according to uh, His will and the way He's working with us at each period of time. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so the basics of dispensation, whatever you want to call it, are there. Yeah. I'm sure many of the the prophets, the leaders, like, you know, whoever, go back to Hezekiah or whoever, I mean, (laughs) a lot of them probably understood some of the basic concepts. Yeah. You know, well, God dealt with people back then because it was that way, and it's now a different way, so he's dealing with us now. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Bill? don't think they understood that Jesus was coming twice either. Uh, that's why the disciples are so confused. You know, they bring swords to protect him when he's going to the authority or he's going being trapped by the authorities and says you don't need that. Uh, it wasn't until after he died. I mean, they're still scratching their head going, what just happened? This was supposed to be the Messiah. The Messiah sets himself up on a throne. He's supposed to rule. And then you start to see the events as they unfold that Jesus was supposed to die and we was supposed to rise again. And now let's look back at the Old Testament and now it's starting to, to click. And I think your point is, is valid. Yeah. 